Well, good morning. All right. I'm going to do that one more time for the fun of group engagement. Good morning, everybody. Uh, All right. Hey, that was exciting. Good to see you. Thanks for being here this morning at Grace Point Church, and thank you for joining us online. It's an honor to have you here with us uh, on Facebook Live, and you're watching now or later. Either one, we're glad to see you and have you along with us. Um, Listen, I'm starting to to pick up again in the series called When Love Works. Thank you to Pastor Kevin last week for talking about forgiveness. Great time with that. Thank you again, Kevin, for that. But I want to start this morning by introducing you to three people. Some of you in this room are going to know these three people. Some, maybe the majority will not. All right. Ready? Here we go. Charlie D'Amelio, Addison Easterling, or Addison Ray, and Bella Porch. You have any idea who I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Those are the top three TikTokers in the world today. Now, if some of you don't even know what that means, that's another conversation. All right. Those are the top three young adults and teenagers who are being followed on the social media platform called TikTok right now. 111 million followers for Charlie D'Amelio, about 68 or 78, uh, and then 68 on down, something like that. 60, 80, 110 million followers apiece. Pretty exciting stuff, right? Now, apparently these people, and I'm not on TikTok, however, however, by the way, little parenting tip, as our kids get older, there's a, there's a new way to discipline kids these days. All I have to do is threaten to get on TikTok and things get in line in the family. I'm just saying, it's a, it's a thing. So I'm not on TikTok, but here's what I've learned about um, these folks is that there's a new category, maybe you know this already, called social media influencer. When you ask, what do you do? Well, I'm a social media influencer. I don't know what that means, but apparently there's uh, dance moves, there's uh, lip syncing that goes on, which of course I would be incredibly gifted at, right? And so maybe I should get on there. So here's the deal. Now evidently, the things that these folks do, and there's all kinds of people with tens of millions of followers, but the top people on TikTok, you have to ask the question, why is it that they have 100 plus million followers or 60 million followers? It's an incredibly huge platform for a 16-year-old, right? Incredibly huge. I would not have been able to handle that as a 16-year-old, and I don't know if you could have either. Incredibly huge. So here's what I think. When, the, when Charlie D'Amelio puts out a new TikTok, which evidently is daily, maybe more than that, I don't know. I, I confess my ignorance. I don't believe that it's actually that much better than the random viral videos that hit here and there. Because there's all kinds of people who put out random TikToks that end up getting viral, but there's only a few who actually end up with tens and hundreds, if you will, 100 million followers. And the reason is because what you do consistently is more important than what we do occasionally. Right? Isn't that a true principle? (laughs) That what we do consistently is more important than what we do occasionally. The fact that these top performers, if you will, consistently put out this kind of content sets them apart from other people. This is true for businesses, right? It's amazing when you think about a business like Disney World, for example, that in pre-pandemic times would hire hundreds of people a week. That you can go there as a family in one year and then three years later, Go back again, for some unknown reason, if you actually wanted to do that, right? Go back again, and you can have the same high-quality experience, but the truth is they've had thousands of employees turn over, but they deliver a consistent product, because what you do consistently is more important than what you do occasionally. That's just the way the world works. That's the way the world works in sports. People wonder, hey, what's the, what's the secret to be an amazing athlete? Well, the question becomes, what are you doing consistently? Not what can you do occasionally. You can have an occasional good game, but what are your consistent 
uh, practice habits. What is it that you do consistently that will make you great? So this is a principle that we know is true across the board. What you do and what I do consistently is so much more important than what we do occasionally. Now, as a person of faith, as a follower of Jesus Christ, what is also true is this, is that who we are consistently is more important than who we are occasionally. That is also true. It, however, doesn't get quite as much fanfare. It isn't nearly as exciting to rally a group of people together and get them in a room and say, all right, everybody, keep doing the same things you're currently doing. But how's that for a rally cry? <laughs> however, however, the principle of consistency and that consistency powers excellence should not be overlooked. And this is where, as we get into the scriptures this morning and we see what John had to write to an early church, this is exactly what he wanted to say to them. They were an early church just forming, beginning to create their own identity. And the power of consistency and faithfulness and remaining true to what they believed was the cornerstone that he built his exhortation and commendation to them around. He told them, this is what I want you to do. And ultimately, it's a rally cry to say this, I want you to be consistent. Now, that may sound less than exhilarating. Can you imagine a coach in the locker room or a, a teacher getting you riled up and say, everybody, this season we're going to be consistent. <laughs> like, that doesn't sell much. But yet, it undergirds every organization, every family, every school that desires excellence is a consistent delivery of the same product over and over and over at a high level. If you want long-term impact and you want your faith to have that kind of impact in the next generation and the next one and the next one, consistency powers that more than what we do occasionally. So I want to invite you to turn to the book of 1 John, and then I want to introduce you a little bit to some background on where we're at. But 1 John chapter 2 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew near you. That's our gift to you. But 1 John chapter 2, it's in the right two-thirds of your Bible. Um, small little letter that John wrote to the early church, and you'll find it in there um, pretty easily, as long as you don't flip too quickly and too many pages stick together. But as you get there, let me just share this as background. Um, John is writing to a church that is new in their faith. In fact, everybody in the New Testament is new to the faith. It's a brand new church. And so here's what's important. When new ideas are presented to people, whatever the ideas are, and you know this already, there are some people who adopt the changes and ideas early and some who simply don't. In fact, a really smart person with the last name of Rogers a while ago came up with the Rogers Innovation bell curve. This was not me, but I hope I'm related. If someone does something smart like that, I have no idea. You've, you've seen this before. On the far left, about 16% of the population are the people who innovate or are early adopters. About 2.5% of people innovate. They're the ones that create the new product. And then the early adopters are like, hey, that sounds like fun. And then you have the early majority, late majority, and the laggards who are like, over my dead body, will I ever do whatever? TikTok, for example, right? over my dead body, when you might be like, that would be actually good, that you never do TikTok them, right? So here's the deal. This week, just by way of explanation and by illustration, this week, um, as it started to get warmer, my mind, maybe yours, went to lawn care. Anyone see some little flowers popping up and grass growing and all that kind of stuff when it was like 72 degrees at the beginning of March? 
We have a couple properties, and I was thinking about how to mow, and I thought, you know what? There's a new thing, right? There's a new thing that I'm not f too familiar with, but there's a robo-mower, right? You guys know about these, right? Anyone have a robotic mower that automatically mows the yard? See, no one raised their hand. This is an idea over here in the innovator and early adopter phase. I looked at it, and I'm like, you know, what if I got a robo-mower? How exciting would that be? You know, you lay down a little wire around the boundary of the property, you have this weird-looking alien box that you set down there, and it randomly mows, not in an even pattern, it just mows, like, overnight or whatever. And, like, wouldn't that be neat? You just wake up in the morning, and at least half the yard is mowed. Like, that would be kind of be nice, right? But then I began asking all kinds of questions, like, what happens when the dog eats the wire? Right? That's a problem. And then who's going to service the thing when it breaks? And can I take it to my Amish guy who sharpens my mower now, or will he know how to sharpen the blades on a weird little, you know, robo-mower that no one has ever seen before? You know, what if it really rains or a monsoon, and can it really get up the incline? And what if someone kicks a soccer ball right into the mower as it's going? I mean, I have all kinds of questions that I don't have answers to. Also, I don't know of anybody else who has a robo-mower. And so I'm considering being an early adopter, but you know what? I feel pressure. I feel pressure from you, who are the early or late majority, who will look at me and be like, what? You spent how much money on a robo-mower? What's wrong with you? Why don't you just use a regular mower, right? Why don't you just hire somebody to mow your yard? As an early adopter, I would feel the pressure of the early or late majority who would criticize, especially if it becomes a bad decision. And that's the way it is with the early adopters. It is difficult to be an early adopter because you feel pressure from the majority who look at you a little bit sideways, like, seriously, you did that. That is exactly the place that the early church finds themselves in. They are being asked to consider a new kind of faith. They are being asked to embrace something called Christianity that has never before shown up on planet Earth. And they're getting pressure from the outside, from the early majority, from the late majority, from the majority population who are looking at them and saying, what's wrong with you? Why would you believe that? Judaism has worked forever. Our other world religions have worked forever. Why would you get a robo-mower when everybody else uses a regular push-mower? Why would you consider that? Can you imagine the pressure it would be to lead your family into a brand new way of seeing the world, particularly seeing faith? This is the audience that John is writing to, and they are feeling the pressure. And it's in this early adopter stage that John writes what we will see here today. So 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 18, here's what he says. He writes to them affectionately. He says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Doesn't that make perfect sense? Let me pause on that just for a minute. Go back to verse 18. He's saying, dear children, this is the last hour. It's simply a way to identify a period of time. This is the time that we're in. It's, he's adding weight to it. Here's the moment that we're in. And the moment is that the Antichrist is coming. Now, our immediate reaction to the Antichrist language is really strong. It's like, whoa, are we talking about a horned figure with some apocalyptic music playing in the background? 
fire, darkness, red images all come to mind. Is that what's going on? I want you to imagine the word antichrist is actually just meaning what it says. Someone who is anti-Christ. Someone who is against Christ. He goes on to explain that. He says, the end of verse 18, even now many antichrists have come. He's simply describing, and he'll describe it later, people who would look at who Christ is and say, he is not the Messiah. He is not who he says he was. They are anti or against Christ. So all that he's saying is right now in this moment that we're in, this cultural moment that we're in early church, there are many people who are against who Christ is calling himself to be. Just be aware of that. In other words, you're feeling pressure from the majority of people who are saying Jesus isn't who you think he is. You're early adopters. You're going to feel that pressure from the outside. He said, this is how we know it's the last hour. Verse 19, they went out from us so, but they did not really belong to us, meaning that there were some people who were likely in the early church who started to hear the teaching of Christianity and evidently felt the pressure from the majority population and felt like, no, nah, this isn't quite true. This isn't right. It doesn't make sense. There's too much pressure. I don't want to be an early adopter. No one else has a robo mower. I'm going to get out of this. And so they have left, and then they bring the pressure back upon these early adopters to reconsider whether or not what they think about Christianity is actually true. He said they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them actually belonged to us. In other words, they didn't really have the faith. Verse 20, but you, he says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. Well, what truth is that exactly, John? He says, I, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar, he asks. And this is so important. It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Let's look at those verses together. He says at verse 20, You have an anointing from the Holy One. Again, new language. Simply meaning, he's referring to the day of Pentecost, early on in the church's development, where the Holy Spirit came, if you will, and anointed and visited the early followers of Jesus. And he's saying now that the Holy Spirit, the Holy One, has come upon you. What Christians believe and have been taught is that when Jesus left the planet, what he said is, I'm going to send to you another counselor, another comforter of the same kind as I am. And so Christians would believe that the Holy Spirit comes upon us upon salvation. When we believe, we get the Holy Spirit who guides us into the way of truth and leads us in our thinking through what we understand about the scriptures. And so what he's saying is, you have, early church, you are not left alone. Jesus was here. He has ascended to the throne. Now you are left with the Holy Spirit to guide you in your teaching. This is what you have. This is how you can know the truth. Follow what the Spirit of God is teaching and leading to you. He says, I don't write to you because you do not know the truth, verse 21, because you do know it. You know the way of Jesus. But, and no lie comes from the truth. And he's very clear, and this is what is central to his argument, verse 22. Who is the liar? And this next statement is the center of what he wants the early church to hang on to, to anchor to, to remain in. He says, it is whoever 
denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is what he's calling the early church to embrace. Embrace that Jesus is the Christ. Embrace that your life and your faith circle around the idea that Jesus is the Christ. Boom, boom, boom. All the other things that come, hang on, let them come and let that filter out. But centrally, that Jesus is the Christ. So he's saying the Antichrist, and he defines it that way. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. This has incredible implications. And you know, you know people, I have friends, you have friends, family, who would say, sit next to you right now and would say, I don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And yet you have a good relationship with him. You can have coffee with them, you can talk to them, you can Zoom with them right now. You can have a good relationship with them, and they do not believe what you believe about who Jesus is. Now, I get that. I have people like that. But I would say, according to John, they would be anti, if you will, anti what we believe about Christ. Okay, this is just his definition of terms. The implication is significant. And you know this is true. For people who do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the way that they see morality is different than people who think that Jesus is the Christ, right? The way that they see economics working is different than how people who see Jesus as the Christ work. The people who do not believe Jesus is the Christ see a future neighborhood, if you will, how neighbors work together differently than how Christians who believe Jesus is the Christ see it. People who believe that Jesus is not the Christ see family differently than how people who think Jesus is the Christ do. Across the board, our worldview is different and begins to separate based on this principle of who is Jesus. And if we believe Jesus is the Christ, all of a sudden, that path leads us in one, it's, it's broad, if you will, in one direction with a variety of implications that are different than people who don't believe the same way. Which is why John comes back to, let's center on, what you think about Jesus will drive your entire worldview. How you run and lead your business, how you understand the economy, how you understand neighborhoods forming and working, how you understand family dynamics working, how you understand your own faith. Everything comes back to and is centered on this idea. And this is so important to John. So he goes on and he says in verse 24, as for you, here's what I want you to do. And this is his rally cry. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. And this is his call. I want you to remain. In the next several verses, he says remain four times. Four times. I want you to see it. He says that, that it may remain in you, verse 24. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he has promised us, eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, and his final call is remain in him. Over and over again in this little section, he's like, guys, here's what I want you to do. You're getting pressure from the outside, I want you to remain. The Holy Spirit is teaching you to remain. Here's what I want you to remain on. Jesus is the Christ. And every way that you see the world is going to splinter off of this principal idea that Jesus is the Christ. I want you to remain in this space. Now, let me go back to where we are quickly. Let me go back to my friend Rogers and his bell curve of change. Remember, these people are in the early adopter stage. And so it makes a ton of sense to tell early adopters, hey, you just bought the robo mower, don't give up on it yet. 
You just need to sharpen the blade. You just need to put that wire down again. Don't give up on it yet. Remain in it. Trust yourself. Believe it can be good. He's challenging people who are at the early adopter stage. You know where we are? You know where you are? You know where I think I am? I think my lived experience, your lived experience, the relationships you have, if you live in Lancaster County or this region around here, the vast majority of us do not consider ourselves early adopters of Christianity. Do you? You're not an early adopter. In fact, I would say that we are more in the late majority. I mean, what does it cost me to say that I'm a Christian around here? It doesn't cost me anything. In fact, I get more credibility by saying that. You might get a better job because someone thinks you're a person of faith. We are in a completely different space than John, his original audience was at. We are in a culture that has embraced, in this little world here, that has embraced the message of Christianity with all kinds of strange nuances, I get that. But nonetheless, we are not, we are not early adopters anymore. And so the question is, what is the message to us? We don't feel the pressure from the majority to walk away from our robo mowers, right? It's almost as if the world now is like, everybody uses a robo mower. Why would you ever not think of doing that? That's the, the vast difference between when John was writing and where we are living right now. And I would argue that the message is actually the same. That what John is saying, that what John is saying to the early church is the same thing that he would say to us, even if we're in the late majority today. And that is to remain, to remain, to remain because who you are consistently is more important than who you are occasionally. Let me give you this illustration. Years ago when I was a student at Lancaster Bible College, there was a mission trip that went to Jamaica. It went to a town in Jamaica called Olympic Gardens. It sounds beautiful, but it's not. Um, a place of high poverty. And as they were putting on an evangelistic uh, presentation in Olympic Gardens, that included some singing, some testimonies, a little bit of scripture reading in there. They just would call the community together, stand outside, and whoever would come would come, and they'd share the gospel and talk to people about who Jesus is and that kind of thing. In Olympic Gardens, after they had done this for a few days in different villages, they got here to Olympic Gardens, and as they were beginning to sing, they heard in the neighborhood, pop, pop, pop. And they didn't know what that was. But the leader on the ground in Jamaica knew immediately what it was, and there was gunfire in the neighborhood. So people began to kind of scatter a little bit. It wasn't an absolute chaotic gunfight, you know, not kind of in the movies. But there was gunfire in the neighborhood, and you could feel the anxiety rise in the room, in that space. And as the leaders were trying to decide what to do, because they had responsibility for the 20-somethings, about 15 of them, who were standing there. I mean, how would you feel if you were a team leader? And you go back and, sorry, we lost your daughter because, you know, it was a gunfight and we didn't leave quick enough. I mean, what's the right thing to do in that moment? The leader on the ground in Jamaica said this to their leader immediately. Please keep singing. These people need to know that Christians don't run in the face of fear. Please keep standing. Please remain. The leaders would testify they never understood the power of remaining until you understand the opposition that you face. That team continued to sing and stand there in that moment. And the power of remaining is profound. It leaves an impression that says, in the face of anxiety, in the face of anger, in the face of fear, in the face of bitterness and resentment, I'm going to hold my ground. 
And this is the call of John even to you and even to me today. To stand your ground that Jesus is the Christ. That is a powerful legacy to leave. It may not have, it may not have the selling power of an exciting, fiery post-game locker room or pre-game locker room speech. Go take the hill. Let's, you know, mount a comeback. Let's bring it back together again, everybody. This is a message of remain. Remain consistent. So I have two things I want to say to you. First of all, I want to say this. Please, be encouraged where you're currently standing. Sometimes I'm afraid that maybe we come to church and we maybe are looking for a little bit of something to get better in our spiritual walk, which is great. I really love that. At the same time, I want to be careful not to feed this idea that we need to keep striving for God's approval and favor. There are times when it is appropriate, and I think this is one of those moments where you might need to just pause and say, where has my spouse, if it's too hard to do for yourself, where has my spouse really remained consistent? for our kids in the past several years. I don't know if I've told them that, but I see it. Where have my parents really been consistent and faithful in this desire to follow Jesus because he is the Messiah? Be encouraged to take a moment today because I know many of you personally and you have been and continue to be faithful in where you're currently standing. Please, take a moment and be encouraged with the power of that. We underestimate, we underestimate the power of long-term decisions, and we overestimate what we think are the power of short-term decisions. Do not underestimate the power of standing and remaining in what you're currently doing, okay? Secondly, if you want to grow a little bit, let me encourage you this way. Let me encourage you this way. To ask this question, how can I consistently engage the tension between the gospel and our culture? And here's what I mean by that. While I think that we are in the late majority, we are not early adopters to Christianity, not by any stretch. We don't have the tension of the majority in this little part of our world pressing down on us, but we do have a tension. Here's the tension we're in. We have a tension of the pressure of over-adapting or under-adapting. Here's what I mean. If I believe that Jesus is the Christ, and I want that message to go to my friends, to my kids' friends, to my family, I can over-adapt the message of the gospel to look so much like the culture that I'm indistinguishable from the culture in which I'm living. And when that happens, I have merged a kind of gospel message with the culture at large in which I, I fail to make any impact because I don't want people to be upset with me or offended by the gospel. There's a tension to over-adapt the gospel message. On the other side is this tension of under-adapting, of standing apart from the culture, of looking at the culture with judgment, of looking over and saying, these, these people who make different moral and ethical decisions, those people are the problem, and under-adapting and not flexing. And so the tension that exists for every business leader, for every dad and every mom and every student is the tension of living in this base that Jesus is the Christ. The culture of the world in which I live, the social and cultural world in which I live, the values of the people that, that hold me on either side, they're going to want me to over-adapt, or sometimes people are going to, I'm going to want to 
under-adapt and not be flexible enough with how I lead my business and my family. And I want to encourage you to ask the question regarding consistency in dialogue. Who can you talk to and who can I talk to, whether it's a family, friend, business leader, a peer in your business group, how can we consistently lead our business, our family, that we can engage the tension that exists so that I'm not over-adapting and giving away any uniqueness of Christianity, and that I'm not under-adapting and standing so far apart from the culture that they would have no interest in the compelling and invitational news of Jesus Christ. This is a tension to live in, what it looks like to engage the gospel and our culture. So, with that being said, let me come back to this simply, that who you are, who you are, who you are and who I am consistently is more important than who we are occasionally. This is true for my TikTok friends. This is true for business leaders. This is true for families. This is true for all of us. And so as you stand in your neighborhood, maybe like Olympic Gardens, and the, the bullets of fear and anxiety in your kids, uncertainty about the future, questions about faith come firing in different directions, the temptation might be to step away, to go sit down, to pull back a little bit. But sometimes, standing, remaining, being a consistent voice in your family, in your peer group, is the most powerful thing that you can do. Because who you are consistently is more important than who you are occasionally. And John tells the early church, please, remain. Don't underestimate the power of remaining and holding that tension of the gospel in the culture that we live. Now, next week, John has another message for us, one about how God sees us in a way that maybe you and I struggle to see. And so I invite you to come back next week as we talk about how God sees us in a way that's incredibly, incredibly unique. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be here this morning to pause and reflect on the power of remaining anchored to the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Christ. And I pray that you would give us both opportunity and wisdom as we seek to live out the gospel message in the culture in which we live. The call for consistency is there and the need for adaptability is high. And so there's beauty in the conversation with our peers to sharpen us, with our spouses to engage us, with our family to motivate and support us. So I pray that we would be people who consistently aim to remain in the truth that Jesus is indeed the Christ and recognize all the tensions that will exist and how to live that out. But oh, that we would remain and oh, that we would not underestimate the power of standing when the bullets fly. That we can be a consistent presence in the space for our children, for our peers, for our businesses, for our employees, and for our neighbors in this space. Give us wisdom as we seek to engage the tension, the gospel, and the culture in which we are. We thank you for what you can do as we seek to remain in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.